Ephesians chapter 4, and I want to uh, just read a few verses, starting at verse 7 to verse 12. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of God's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led hosts of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Father, thank you uh, now that we can turn to your word and uh, that we can spend some time in it. I thank you for your word because it is one of the, the few things in our life that is stable and never changes. So much around us changes, Lord, our attitudes, our actions, our relationships, our world, our jobs, um, the circumstances of our life. But your word is the same yesterday, today, and forever. All around us will one day pass away, but your word will endure forever. So will you help us have confidence in the enduring word of God? Would you take our minds and our affections and our hearts and our wills this morning, and would you shape them? Um, by your eternal word, would you make the book live? Would you make it live in my heart? Would you make it live in the hearts of these people? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We continue to, to, to talk about how we respond to the grace of God. And the first three chapters of Ephesians were all about what God has done for us. Staggering what he's done for us. Chapter 4 begins then, how then do we respond to God's grace and his mercy in our life? Uh, Last uh, week, we spent some time just talking about how one of the first ways that Paul addresses how we respond to what Christ has done for us is that we understand that we become part of a family and that there's a a specific way that we're to behave and uh, there's a specific um, sort of things that guide what we believe and what we think. In other words, um, there is a unity about us. And in fact, in the verses 4 to 6, if you were to look at them seven times, you would find the word one used. So there's a great deal of emphasis on unity and that God has called us to be one. We are one family, we are one temple, we are one body, um, we are uh, one citizenship. And so there's a great deal of emphasis on our unity. But when you come to verse 7, you you notice something strangely right away that all of a sudden it seems that the unity is discarded. And now we're talking about diversity because he says then uh, all those ones and then he comes to verse 7 and he says... But grace was given to each one of us. All of a sudden now we start talking about diversity. Those aren't opposites. I was thinking about some illustrations and um, I thought of sports illustrations. I hate basketball, but it's the one that came to my head. Um, So basketball, you think of a basketball team. A basketball team is characterized by unity. It has the same name. Uh, It might be the University of Saskatchewan basketball team, and I don't even know what they're called. I went there, but, but they have the same name. They wear the same uniform. They work out of the same playbook. They have the same coach. Um, they, they have the same dressing room. So there's a number of things that say this is a unique bunch of people that are the same. But then you think about that basketball team, and it's also characterized by incredible diversity. Five different positions on the court. Some are offensive. Some are defensive. 
Some are shooters. Some are, are defenders. Some are shot blockers. Um, they, some are fast. Some are slow. Some, they're, we're, they're from all different parts of the world. And so there's this incredible diversity which makes up the unity which is called the University of Saskatchewan basketball team. Men's basketball team. Um, think about that with a family. When you think about your family, uh, our family, Kath and mine, we share the same last name. Um, and uh, so do our boys. We, growing up, we had the same house rules. Uh, we had the same uh, home that we lived in. We ate the same uh, food at meals. Um, there, was a, there was a great deal of unity that we cultivated that said, this is the Hawks family. But within that family, there is incredible diversity. There's five people with all different first names. And behind each of those names is a, a personality and a gifting and a contribution that they make to the Hawks family. They each had their own wardrobe. Um, some were tall, some were short, some were loud, some were quiet, some were gifted in this area, some were gifted in that area. And together, that incredible diversity made up the unity which was called the Hawks home. Well, in the same way, when we become Christians, we become part of this amazing family of God, but we don't strive for uniformity. In other words, when you become a Christian, we don't say, check your minds out at the door, um, start thinking like this, and by the way, here's your dress, you need to dress like this, and by the way, um, here's the food that you're going to start eating, and, and, and all those sorts of things. We don't we don't try and shove everybody into the same mold. We understand that unity does not mean uniformity. And in fact, Scripture, and this is what we're going to talk about this morning, Scripture teaches us that in fact unity is best maintained and achieved through incredible diversity, which is one of the strangest things in the world. But that's how it happens. And that's one of the things that we're going to look at this morning. That understanding our unity is made possible by realizing the incredible diversity that exists within the body of Christ. And if you are like me, that is great news. I cannot stand to be forced into a mold. I try to put my pants on a different leg each morning. I try to drive, although it's very difficult in Parksville, but I try to drive a different way to work if I can or a different way home. I just hate being squeezed into a certain mold. I like my, my independence. I like my uniqueness. And that's what Paul is saying, that in the body of Christ, the way that we achieve unity is by embracing our individuality and our diversity. And for me, that is good news. We shouldn't go around singing the song from Cinderella, why can't she be more like me? That's not the purpose of a church and a body. So the first thing that I just want to mention here is, is the gifts of Christ to individual believers. And just sort of start that way. In verse 7, he says very clearly, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace was given to each one of us. First of all, nobody is left out. There's nobody, regardless of your background, regardless of your age, regardless of, of, of your sex, anything like that, there's nobody that is left out from being a critical part of the family of God. There is, there is no one who can say, I don't fit. I don't have anything to contribute. I do believe there are those who say, I don't want to fit, and I don't want to be involved but I don't find that to be a biblically, biblical way of thinking. 
Because Christ says here to each one of us, has been given a gift. And I love the fact that it's a gift. It's not something that we earn. It's not something that we deserve. It's not something that's ours by merit. It's something that Christ says, you, you're going to do this, and this is your gift. And you, you're going to do this, and this is your gift. There's incredible diversity that Christ gives according to his measure to us. You go through the Bible, and we won't look at them this morning. Um, uh, uh, um, Dan read from 1 Corinthians 12, and there's a couple of gift lists in there. There's three other ones at least in the Bible, and some people try and add them all up, and you get anywhere from 22 to 25. Uh, you go into the Old Testament, I believe there's a whole bunch of gifts in the Old Testament that we don't often translate into the New Testament. And then there's all the one another passages, which speak of praying for one another, exhorting one another, encouraging one another, bearing with one another. And you, you put all of those things in, and any number of those can make up the combination of your unique gift. And when you think of that way, there is nobody that has the same gift as somebody else. That Christ has designed us in such a way that each one of us has a very critical role to play in a local church. It's not like there are eight teachers and therefore, well, seven of them are relevant because only one can do that job. No, it's not like that. There are eight people that might be able to teach, but they all have different emphasis or different giftings, and they might use it in Sunday school. They might use it in growth groups. They might use it in women's ministry. They might use it in men's ministry. They might use it in preaching and teaching. So there's a uniqueness to the gift that each one of us has been given by God. In other words, the combinations are limitless when you see what God has equipped the church with. Just as the vibrations in our voice are unique. I was chatting with one individual about this sort of thing, and and there are tests now that you can take that are even more accurate than lie detector tests, and they're tests that are based on the vibrations in your voice. And so even you have a very unique voice print. You have ridges on your fingers, and no two people have the exact same ridge marks. You are an individual by your voice vibrations. You're an individual by the ridges that are on your finger and the way that that leaves a mark on stuff. And I love doing that on my phone every once in a while. Then you rub it off. It's just weird. Anyhow, this is my random head. Um, On top of that, we just had that amazing snowfall. I love the snowfall. I don't know how they've ever proved this, but they say that there's no snowflake that has got a double. Because the way the crystals are formed, um, it makes it an absolutely unique snowflake. And in that same way, when they think about your uniqueness of your voice, your uniqueness of your fingerprints, in that same way, you are absolutely unique in the local body of Christ. Nobody else can do what Christ has gifted you to do in the local body of believers. I am so convinced that Christianity is not a spectator sport. And if you are in the stands this morning, I want to do all I can to encourage you to step out of the stands and become part of the local body of Christ in a way that that drives our unity together. God has a role for you to fill that nobody else can fill in this body. And I think that's the first thing that he's saying. I was reading David Wells. And he was talking about, uh, he's written a number of great books, and he was talking about the visible church. That's the church that we see gathered. It's the flesh and blood. It's the people that, that are gathered. As it gathers together in a local setting, we're a local church, a local group of Christians, that this, this is our expression of the church that we go to. And, and he, he was talking about how the local church, in its visible expression, is losing its significance across North America. And he says that perhaps this is no more evident today than in the electronic church. 
There are literally millions of Americans who not only watch television preachers, but for whom these preachers are their only engagement with the church. Week by week, they are going to church but are alone. Their church asks for no involvement except the financial one, provides no opportunity for service, assumes no responsibility for discipline, offers no sacraments, offers no pastoral care, and rarely provides sustained preaching. I want to just say there are those that are shut-ins and there are those who are ill that benefit greatly from these. I'm talking about those people who choose to abandon the local church, the visible body of Christ, and make an electronic church their church. He goes on to say this yields only a deeply privatized understanding of Christian faith. This is an embarrassing travesty of the New Testament teaching on the church. We are meant to be part of a visible group of people in a local place using our unique gifts to maintain the unity of that body of Christ. In contrast, um, and Dan read this from 1 Corinthians 12, the Bible contrasts the church to a body, a physical body. You think about a minute how the thousands of parts of your body contribute to the unity which makes you. Uh, the, the unity that makes you think the way that you walk, the way that you work, the way that you do, makes all your parts function as they're supposed to function. Think about the, the importance of each of those parts in contributing to the way that your body works. We have the muscular and the skeletal and the immune and the respiratory and the nervous system. All of those systems are absolutely crucial for your body to function as a unit. Think about the organs or your senses. Think about your ears, your eyes, your nose, your, your fingers, your, your arms, your, your legs, uh, your, your heart, your skin. All of that is incredibly critical for the functioning of your body. Think about your bones. And then you go down to the, the microbiological level of the cells and what each cell does and how each cell has a specific role in your body. And some of you know, probably all of us at one time or another, because we've most had a cold, you know what happens to the unity of your body when one of those systems, one of those organs, one of those cells starts not doing what it's supposed to do. The whole unity of your body is impacted. Well, that's the point that we're trying to make about the church. Each one of us has a unique gift to offer to the local body of Christ that helps it function as a unit. And when that part is not being used, the whole body suffers. Think about um, how do you find your gift? This is very quick, but I would simply say, look around. Look at what needs doing. What are you passionate about? What, what has God impressed upon your heart to do? Who needs help? What role needs filling? What isn't being done that you think that you can do? Read the gift passages. Read the one another passages. Ask Jesus to show you what is your unique contribution to the church. I was thinking about this. Um, Christmas uh, has just passed, and, and um, uh, most of you will, will probably have your Christmas trees down by now. Um, but wouldn't it be strange if where your Christmas tree was, there was one or two gifts with your name still on them? And, and, and you know, you, you walk by them and, oh, I don't really care about that. Or, no, I don't really have time for that gift. And think about the, the person that's taken the time to, to wrap that gift and to buy that gift for you. Um, and, and they look at you and, oh, no, I'll get to it later. It just sits there. Wouldn't it be strange if we just ignored the gift that was given to us to be used and enjoyed? 
Well, I think in the same way, that's the same way for a Christian, isn't it? Wouldn't it be strange if, if we were to, to say, yeah, I don't really want to use my gift. I don't really want to find out what my gift is. Uh, I don't really care, Jesus, that you've got a gift specifically for me. No, we open our gifts. It's a gift that has been given thought into buying it for us. In the same way, Jesus takes you, your unique personality, your unique strengths, your unique work, witness, weaknesses, and he says, this is what I want you to do in the body of Christ. Um, secondly, how, how has Christ gained the right to give those gifts? You say, well, who is Christ to give me gifts? Who is he to, to, to give gifts to the church? Well, uh, Paul begins by quoting a psalm, Psalm uh, 68, 18. And um, it's a difficult quote, and I would just commend you to, to, to study on your own if, if you're puzzled by it. But Psalm 68 begins with God winning a war. And a victory. And, and what happens is when you win a victory, you, you take all your army and you take all your spoils and you have a triumphant march and you walk to a high place and, and your victory is celebrated. What Paul is doing here through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is he's looking ahead to the incredible victory of Christ. The incredible victory of Christ who was in heaven, who came down to earth. He fought this incredible battle against the forces of darkness, against Satan, against all the principalities and the powers in high places. He defeated sin. He defeated death. He defeated the devil. And he he was raised from the dead on the third day. And he is now victorious. And the Bible said he has been raised far above all rulers, all authorities, and everything has been in put, put in subjection to him. Back in the old days, for, for hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, when a king or a commander would go out on a, on a, on a battle, um, if it was a significant battle, they would take off with their army, they would win the battle, they would take all kinds of spoils, they would take all kinds of captives, they would release captives that had been taken from their land, and they would set them free, and they would come back into their city with this great parade and this great triumph. And as they walked into the city, in fact, I read in, in one instance that um, in Rome, that a slave would, would go before the king in his chariot. And I'd hate to be the slave doing this job, but his job was to say along the lines of, don't let this go to your head. You're not a god. Don't let this go to your head. Um, I wouldn't want that job. But So he's going down. He's got this massive amount of booty. Um, spoils from the war. Sorry. <laughs> um, I guess I should have even qualified that. Um, he's got lots of stuff. And, and he looks at his Roman general and he says, here, have this gold. He looks at this, this, this fighter, here, have this, have this um, vase. Um, and he's giving gifts out all over the place. He's giving gifts to politicians. He's giving gifts to people. They're celebrating his victory. And because he is the victorious commander, he has the authority to distribute those gifts. And that's what Paul is saying here about Christ. How does Christ have the authority to give us gifts? Because he won. Because he won the battle. Because he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Because he has conquered all the forces of darkness in all the universe. He has taken all captives. He has all things under his, under his feet. And so he has the authority to hand this stuff out. Just a couple of verses so that you, you, you can pick it up. Second Corinthians um, talks about one of these triumphs in, in, um, uh, that, that take place and applies it to Christ. Verse 14, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, 
and who, who through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. There's that language. He leads us in a triumphal procession. He is the victor. He is the conqueror. Or you go to um, Colossians chapter 2 um, and uh, verse 13 uh, to 15 there. And in uh, Colossians 2, uh, 13 to 15, um, let's just read verse 15. It says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So how does Christ have authority to give gifts? He has authority because of his conquest over sin. He has authority because he has defeated all the foes in this universe. Does, that, does the cost of your gift not make you more determined to want to use it? Does the reality in knowing that the, by the authority of Christ, who is the King of Kings, he, by his authority, he has given you a gift, shouldn't that not inspire you to say, I will use my gift because the King of Kings has given it to me? Sometimes I wonder if we think or appreciate the time and expense that people go to in in giving us just the right gift for our birthday or for Christmas. And sometimes even the sacrifice that parents make in order to give their children just the right gift that they need. Well, think about it in the terms of perfection that Christ knows exactly what you need, that Christ has given his life in order to give you that gift, but he has the authority to give you that gift. And so he gives those gifts to the body of Christ, so that in our diversity we can strive for unity together. The final point, <coughs> the final point <coughs> is that Christ gives, or the gifts that Christ gives to the church. And I think this is so uh, important for us to say, and time is basically gone, so we'll take maybe another five or six minutes um, just to, to bounce through stuff that we probably should take a whole, whole Sunday morning to talk about. But Paul has been reminding us that unity is, a cha- is achieved through diversity. That the unity of the family of God comes about through the rich and unique diversity of the people of God. And that Christ has given us gifts and he's able to give us gifts because he's the conquering king. And so now Paul draws attention to a few specific gifts. And these are gifts of men that Christ gives to the church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And what I want you to to focus on, because I think this is the most important point that that I believe Paul is making, and it's at least the one that I want to make this morning. Do you notice what is central in all of those gifts? The Word of God. The Word of God. It's absolutely critical. And so Christ gives gifts of men to the church... whose primary responsibility is the Word of God because it is the Word of God that takes our diversity, funnels it into into the purpose of God, and brings about unity. And so the Word of God is critical to all of those roles. The Word of God is the compass that has been given to the church by which we navigate through life and through what life has to, to bring our way. David Wells, in another book, He said, it's certainly the case that the word of God, read or preached, has the power to enter the innermost crevices of a person's being, to shine light in unwanted places, to explode the myths and deceits by which fallen life sustains itself, and to bring the person face to face with the eternal God. It is the biblical word, the word of God, which God uses to bring repentance, to excite faith, to give new life, to sustain that life once given, to correct, to nurture, and to guide. And then he goes on to say this. He says, when the church loses the word of God, it loses the very means by which God does his work. In other words, the word of God is absolutely critical 
to a church. When the church loses the word of God, it loses the means by which God does his work. To put put these, in other words, the central task of the church is the ministry of the word of God. Christ chose certain men and gave them the responsibility to make sure that at the heart of what the church is and does is the word of God. And we need to preach not only the call of the gospel, which we try to do, but also the depth of the gospel. We must never become a church that only counts sheep and does not feed the sheep. We need to do both of those. In fact, my emphasis would be, let's spread the gospel as far as we can do it, but let's make sure we don't neglect feeding the sheep. And to protect against this, Christ has given gifts to the church. I'll say these very quickly. Apostles. My understanding of Scripture in this place is that those apostles refer to the 12 or 13 apostles at the beginning of the church. They were foundational to the church. That the office of apostle in this sense is no longer open. That their role was, in fact, all of the New Testament, apart from a couple books, was written directly by one of those apostles. And the rest of them were written by those who were side by side with the, God, with, the, with, the apostle, with the apostles. Do you see the centrality of the word? Their role, God's gift of the apostles to the church, was that they might lay the foundation of the word of God for the church. Central to the role of those initial apostles was the word of God. And then we come to prophets. I am one of these who understands prophets in this context also as being foundational. And in, in, first, uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, it, Paul says there that the apostles and the apostles are the foundation of the church. As the New Testament was being written, as the word of God was being communicated, the apostles would, would write the word and the prophets would come and explain it and would teach it and would, would affirm the word of God. And so from my understanding in this instance, the office of prophet in the sense of writing infallibly the word of God is closed. We do have the gift of a prophet today, and they speak um, truth, and they articulate truth, but they do not speak the Word of God. And I'm always cautious. Whenever somebody gives a word of prophecy, I do not like when they use the first person. I, the Lord, say this. I, the Lord, say that. No. No, because you do not judge the Word of God. We are not to judge the Word of God, but the Bible tells us we are to judge prophetic utterances. And so when people speak in a prophetic manner, I prefer that they say, I believe the Lord is saying this. I believe the Lord is saying that. I believe that this is what, the, what God is intending for us. That way, you remove them from the position of, how do I challenge what God is saying? And you open yourself up to the biblical admonition, which says, test all of prophecies. So, so again, the, the office of prophet, I believe, was part of the inaugural New Testament. It was founded and foundational to giving us the word of God. Evangelists, I won't say much about them. Um, uh, come to the last one, which is uh, pastors and teachers. And I believe that that is an ongoing part of the gift of God to the church. Evangelists uh, are pastors and teachers. And their role is, is the word of God, preaching the word of God. You see that everywhere in Scripture. Preach sound doctrine. Don't give in to those who want their ears tickled. Give yourself to prayer and to preaching. That is the role of a pastor and a teacher. And what Paul is saying here is that pastor teachers are gifts of God to the church. One of the things that I find, Kath and I were out with some very good friends of ours who travel all over the world, 
um, they're missionaries, but they, they raise money and they go to conferences and stuff. And one of the things that struck me again, and it's something that I'm aware of, is the, is the very difficult role that there is on being pastors and the, the, the enormous stress that is put on them either to stay on the Word of God or to deviate from the Word of God. And how many of them are dropping like flies around the country because they can't handle the, the, the stress or the pressure. They are the gifts, but, but what I'm always happy about is God, this is God's church. And God will always have a pastor for this church. Always. None of us is indispensable or irreplaceable. But the primary responsible of a pastor teacher is to make sure that the word of God is carefully and clearly and regularly taught to the people of God. So again, you, you and I could quibble about are there still apostles? Are there still prophets? Are there still evangelists? What are the role of pastors and teachers? What I don't think we can quibble about is the primary central role that they have, the Word of God. So we, we, we begin then to tie this all together. Um, and we realize that the church is to be governed by the Word of God. That this is what helps us in our incredible diversity to maintain the unity that has been created for us in Christ Jesus. You look at Psalm 19. You look at Psalm 119. You look at 2 Timothy 3.16. You look at Hebrews 4.13. And those are all passages which tell us about the Word of God. Mark Devers in his book, The Delivered Church, Deliberate Church, writes this. Jesus is building his church, and he's doing it by the power of his own word. Church leaders who have been committed to seeing the church reformed according to God's word down through the ages have had the com- this common method. Read the word, preach the word, pray the word, sing the word, see the word. And we saw the word tonight or this morning in the baptism of Terry. He says, these are the five basics that are essential to corporate life, health, and holiness in any local church. The word of God. And so these are, this is the way that we maintain our unity. So as we, as we think about this, then as we try and wrap it up, uh, up this morning, Remember that God has called us to respond to his grace by becoming part of this incredible family. And that part of our responsibility in this family is to learn how to behave towards one another and to learn what are the boundaries of our unity. But the way that we maintain that unity and the way that we function is to use our incredible diversity, which I am so thankful for, to realize that each one of us has a unique gift that only we can bring to the table at Parksville Fellowship Baptist Church to realize that Jesus died in order to have the right to give you that gift and that part of those gifts include gifts of men that God has given to the church whose sole responsibility is to make sure that the word of God is faithfully and regularly proclaimed so that in our diversity we can maintain unity.